This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The sun was beating against my skin as I was trying to adjust my lawn chair umbrella when my phone buzzed. I was watching my son play baseball at a small interstate town not far from St. Genevieve where a jury found Josh Keezer guilty. I looked down at my phone and my heart started racing. I can help, the texter said. It was Andy Stone, the owner of the TNT tanning salon where Michelle would go to tan and where Michelle met her boyfriend Lyle Day. My heart skipped a couple of beats as I turned my attention away from home plate and to the message that sounded so promising. I'd had a couple conversations with Stone and about whose clients were at the tanning salon and his drug habits dating back to 1987. He knew many of the major characters in this case. I'd long suspected that TNT was a beehive of nefarious activity, a notion confirmed by people who still work in the building where TNT once offered services. Okay, I'm listening, I replied. How can you help? I will send you a voice record of everything that happened, he said. Yes, sir, I wrote. Can't wait to hear what you have to say. I will tell you the whole truth, he said, but I need your help urgently, and I need proof that I will be fine after I tell you the whole story. I'm out of town at the moment, I said. Are you in immediate danger? Yes, immediate danger, he said. Please explain, I replied. I need to get out of this place and get a motel so we can meet. People are after my life, and I want to tell you what I know immediately. Are you taking me serious? I believe you know things about the murder, but I have to think about my own safety too. Yes, I do, he replied. I responded, I don't know how I can make you feel safe. He replied, send me some money right now so I can leave this place. What makes you think I have money? I replied, I don't, and I can't offer a deal in exchange for the truth. That's not how this works. Like, I can't buy your statement because then it's not trustworthy. I can protect you in terms of keeping you anonymous. Yes, sure, but I need that cash right now. I will give you my statement, but I'm not selling it. I just need your help. I can't give you cash, I told him. I don't have any for one. I can make some calls to some agencies to see if we can find a safe house for you. If I don't leave this place tonight, I'm not talking anymore, he said. When you say, this place, where are you? I asked him. Any amount, he replied. I need cash to get out or you lose your story. It is what it is, I said. I'm not paying you cash that I don't have, and by giving you cash, your credibility is shot. If you're in immediate danger, explain to me the danger, and I will contact someone to help you. That's the best I can offer. If you're in trouble, a journalist is not the person you should be reaching out to. Okay, he replied. Andy Stone told me in an earlier conversation he'd been an addict for a long time. He started a tanning business on a busy stretch of road that goes right through Sykeston. It's adjacent to a bowling alley right across the four lane from Sykeston's airport. And the salon was positioned adjacent to property which housed the sheriff's family business Feral Excavating or Feral Enterprises. And he had sought out that particular building space from the owners. TNT was positioned in the space at the front right of an L-shaped office building. I stopped in to see some folks who worked in one of the other offices there. They'd worked in the family business for decades and remember some of the odd behavior at TNT. Andy Stone's reputation as an addict goes back a long time. Back when he was friends with Michelle, he was a strikingly handsome man. He could have been a model, sources told me. His wife was a blonde bombshell. She was a friend of Michelle's, too. The ladies in the office told me they remember a doctor, Rena Kova, stopping by the salon one day. He acted all out of sorts, and he went into the salon and was seen throwing cardboard displays in anger. Rena Kova had been convicted in the mid-1980s of illegally distributing pain medications and sedatives. In 2007, he was busted for possession of powder and crack cocaine. The messages I received from Andy Stone are indicative of the problems that face anyone looking into this murder. People know things. They know solid information. But credibility is an issue. Does Andy Stone really know what happened the night on November 7, 1992? Or was he just a desperate addict looking for some cash for bail or to provide his next fix? 
Was he really desperate for a place to stay? Was he really in danger? I followed up with one more text, and I told him I hoped he was okay and that I understood addiction life was hard. But I also told him, in very frank terms, that he had told me, without any off-the-record conditions, that he knew information about Michelle's murder, and I was prepared to use that information. If you make the choice not to respond to this message, I wrote, I'll assume you're making the decision to keep your knowledge secret. But think of who you're protecting. They beat, shot, and killed a girl who was 95 pounds and not even 5 feet tall. Marvin Lawless loved his daughter. You understand that. It's never too late to do the right thing. I never heard from Andy Stone again. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. I got the feeling they just wanted me to say that either Josh did it or that he had told me he did it. I don't think either Wyndham or Farrell cared if I told them the truth or not. They just wanted my statement to match up with Sean's. At that point, he never should have left the sheriff's office. He should have, he should have been set down right there. Mark's statement about Ray Ring would, in later years, be dubbed the Wooten Report after the Scott City officer who took it. It was found when the case was reopened, clipped onto Brenda Shivitz's notebook. It would become the linchpin for Josh Kieser's exoneration because it was a clear example of what's called a Brady violation, based on a ruling which says the state must provide the defense with all exculpatory evidence. Scott County law enforcement and the state of Missouri violated Josh Kieser's constitutional rights by keeping that report secret. That report was only one piece of the undoing of Josh's conviction. We will get into much more of that in later episodes. The obvious takeaway from this statement is that Mark Abbott said he saw Ray Ring at the payphone in a white car. And that was a big find for Josh Kieser's pro bono defense team at Brian Cave Law Firm. But when you become really familiar with the case, two other things become important in less obvious ways. The first thing is that Mark Abbott said he'd met Ray Ring at a party in Sykeston earlier that night, which gives us something to consider about Mark's timeline before heading to the Country Nights Bar. The second thing is that he specifically called Beardsley out as the deputy who was suspicious of him. I would simply ask, how did he know that? If you go back and re-listen to that interview between Mark Abbott and Tom Beardsley from episode one, there is nothing that I can tell that tips off that Beardsley is suspicious of Mark Abbott. I mean, there was one moment where Beardsley asked, quote, all the way down, unquote, when Mark was describing how he reached in to pull Michelle up by the shoulder. And Beardsley did ask Mark to go down to the sheriff's department to get fingerprinted for elimination prints, which I suppose could be interpreted by Mark as being suspicious. But that just doesn't seem like it would be enough to react so strongly to the cop who only spoke to him for five minutes. So, if not from that first five minutes, how would Mark Abbott know that Tom Beardsley viewed him as a suspect unless someone told him that? The report that Mark Abbott gave to Officer Wooten was just a few days after the meeting in which Beardsley noted that Abbott should be considered a suspect. In Beardsley's report, he noted that Abbott's story changed by the time he talked to Beardsley and by the time he was interviewed by Shivitz. Mark also called out Bill Farrell for asking about a polygraph. But here's the thing. Bill Farrell didn't want a polygraph. If Bill Farrell wanted a polygraph, he would have ordered one. Bill Farrell was the man in charge. There are notations and notes from investigative files that Mark offered to take a polygraph. None were given, and no blood was ever drawn. Now, why would Mark Abbott know that Tom Beardsley was a threat? Why would Mark offer to take a polygraph? Why would Bill Farrell not order one? Why would Mark curse Bill Farrell's name that he wanted a polygraph when it, that appears not to be true? Why would Bill Farrell and his deputy withhold that report from the defense? Mark Abbott would later go before a jury and point his finger at Josh Kieser as the man in that car. Ray Ring had dark skin, a broad nose, full lips. Not a pointy nose, an angular face, and thin lips like Josh's. I don't know what Ray Ring's hair looked like in 1992, but every photo of him on the internet shows him with a shaved head. Josh Kieser looks absolutely nothing like Ray Ring. I would think that Mark's statement would spur a few different kinds of questions for investigators at that time. First, why would Mark Abbott just now be telling officers he now recognized the man at the payphone? 
Why would he be upset with Tom Beardsley and not trustworthy of the sheriff's department when they had yet to take his blood or make him do a polygraph or frankly ask him any tough questions? And by the way, if he's lying, what would that say about Abbott and his status as a witness versus a suspect? Why would he try to cast suspicion on someone else? One day later, Sheriff Bill Farrell and Don Windham, the highway patrol investigator, interviewed Ray Ring. Now let me talk about Windham for just a minute. I talked to Windham at length about this case, and he expressed deep regret and remorse about what happened to Josh Keezer. He acknowledged mistakes were made. I want to note specifically that Wyndham and Farrell were often not on the same page. Farrell made it known to his staff that he was not pleased that the highway patrol was called in for assistance. That was not Farrell's doing, but ultimately Beardsley's. Wyndham told me in my interview with him that he was not in the loop in terms of other documents in the case and key decisions that were made. He was often kept in the dark, which meant he could not fully and adequately pursue the case. What this means is it's probable that Wyndham didn't even see the Wooten report. He may not have even known that Mark Abbott had identified Ray Ring as the man at the payphone. For all we know, he was just told Ring's name came up. Anyway, Wyndham kept good notes from that interview with Ray Ring. From the notes that Wyndham took, we can find discrepancies with information that we learned from Lyle Day. One is that Ray Ring said he went to the party in Matthews with Gene Haynes and Lyle Day around 9 p.m. and stayed there until 5 minutes before 1 a.m. He said they went to Sykeston and they dropped him off at Hardy's around 1.10. This, if you recall, is a different time frame than what Gene Haynes' sister gave. She said they left her house around 1.15 or so. And the Hardy's manager said that they arrived at Hardy's between 1.30 and 2, not 1.10, like Ring said. So that's a difference of 20 minutes. Ring said Day and Haynes left, leaving Ring inside Hardy's. He said they didn't return, so he left Hardy's on foot, walking toward home. So that's another discrepancy. Day said they dropped Ring off at his car at Hardy's. Ring said he knew who Lawless was, but stated he never talked to her. According to Wyndham's report, Ring stated he never went to Benton on November 7, 1992, and he had several witnesses to verify that he was in Sykeston. That's obviously a discrepancy with what Mark Abbott had told Wooten the night before. And then there's this, quote, I asked him if he knows Mark Abbott. He said he knows who he is, but doesn't like him. He said he is a racist and said he would kill any black who dated a white girl and would kill any girlfriend of his who dated a black. He said he dated Laura Bailey a few times and she had previously dated Abbott. He said Abbott has some real asshole friends. He said they are mean and capable of killing someone. He said they are Kevin Williams and Gary Arnzen. Abbott, Williams, and Arnzen all smoke marijuana, get drunk, and then went to fight. They get mean. Unquote. Later in the report, Wyndham wrote the following, quote, Ring said Day is a good friend of his. He said he heard Day talking about the possibility that he had gotten Lawless pregnant. Ring said Day said that about three other girls also. He said Daryl Best is a good friend of Day's also, and he drives a white Ford Escort. They are friends with Andy Stone of TNT Tanning. Ring said he doesn't think Best ever dated Lawless and that Stone was married. So there are a few more discrepancies here, some which may seem minor, but definitely, in my opinion, worth more investigation. Obviously, the biggest one is he flat out denied being in Benton, Missouri, the night of Michelle's murder refuting Mark's report. But what really stands out to me is that Ring seemed to know Mark Abbott pretty well. In fact, enough to call him racist, providing first-hand conversations he'd had with Mark Abbott. This interview is also the first reference in the entire case of Kevin Williams. Ring said Mark's buddy Williams and another friend, Arnzen, would smoke pot and then get violent. Now come on, really, does that make sense? I mean, who smokes pot then gets violent and wants to brawl? I suspect, but I can't say for sure, that Ring was really substituting pot for meth or cocaine as to not stir up too much trouble. Anyway, so let's step back for just a minute. Lyle Day's buddy, Ray Ring, who Lyle Day spent much of the night with the hours before the murder, knew Mark Abbott. He'd had conversations with Mark Abbott, knew Mark Abbott's friends, knew they liked to fight, and told officers they did drugs. And this man, Lyle Day's buddy, a mixed-race black man, was identified by Mark Abbott as being at the payphone minutes after the murder. Mark Abbott was saying not only did he see a man in the car, 
He knew him personally. He said he had seen Rain Ring at a party earlier that night in Sykeston. And Lyle Day acknowledged that he was in Sykeston earlier that night. Ray Ring said Lyle Day had picked him up from Sykeston around 8.30. So what all this means is that if Mark is telling the truth about seeing Ray Ring at a party in Sykeston earlier that night, there is a very, very good chance that Mark and Lyle Day were at the same place at the same time on the night of the murder, hours before Michelle was killed. This information has never been publicly acknowledged by any attorneys or law enforcement who have studied the case. Michelle and Lyle had been fighting. They'd had a big fight. Lyle thought Michelle was pregnant. It's very possible that the two men who could have been in the paternity conversation was perceived pregnancy were together the night of the murder. For the longest time, I believe Mark Abbott was simply looking to shift suspicion onto Ray Ring. That position shifted when I examined the Wooten report more closely. A couple of years ago, before I started making these connections, I wrote Ray Ring in prison. Nervous about leaving my home address for future correspondence, I instead, with permission, gave the address of an attorney friend's office in Cape Girardeau. A few months after that correspondence, a man claiming to be Mark Abbott showed up at that law office saying he needed help on a custody case. My friend explained he didn't normally handle custody cases, and Abbott left the office never to return. Ring was the only person I'd ever shared that address with for correspondence. So is that a coincidence? I think it's most likely that Ray Ring gave that address to Mark Abbott. I came to learn a lot more about Ray Ring and Mark Abbott here more recently. Through a public records request, I got my hands on the court files and investigative reports of a federal drug investigation dubbed Operation Speed Bump, which took down a major Mexican meth operation in the mid-1990s and sent more than 20 people to prison for their involvement. According to witness statements given to law enforcement, Mark Abbott and Ray Ring were dealing meth together as far back as at least the summer of 1993, just eight months following the murder. Ring was not convicted in that particular operation, but he would be sentenced on meth charges later. Many years later, Ring would tell police that he and Mark Abbott were close enough that Ring would sometimes deliver drugs in Mark Abbott's truck. Ray Ring knew Mark Abbott. Mark Abbott has denied knowing Ring around the time of the murder. In fact, he denies making that report to Wooten at all. But looking at Wyndham's notes from November of 1992, just a couple of weeks after Michelle's murder, Ring wasn't claiming to be a friend of Mark's. The opposite, in fact. Ring painted Mark Abbott as a racist with some asshole friends who liked to fight and were capable of murder. Mark Abbott brought Ray Ring's name into the investigation. Ring brought Kevin Williams' name into the investigation. All three, at some point or another, served convictions for meth distribution. We'll talk a lot more about the meth ring in later episodes. It matters, and it was a big deal. Scott County, Missouri was a meth hotspot in the mid-1990s. Missouri was once dubbed the meth capital of the United States. Things were breaking bad in Scott County, Missouri, long before Ray Ring had a portrait of Walter White tattooed onto his chest. Again, documents show that the meth ring was pulling drugs from the Mexican cartel as early as the summer of 1993. But what was happening in 1992, specifically in November of 1992? It's harder to tell. Were drugs a factor in Michelle's death and Josh Keezer's wrongful conviction? I just can't say for sure. There are two prevalent theories as to why Michelle was killed. We've already discussed the first one quite a bit. That motive is the perceived pregnancy. The second theory is that Michelle Lawless knew too much. Both theories, at one time or another, have been supported by Mark Abbott himself. So let's take a minute to examine a little bit about what could point to a knew too much theory. This, of course, would have to deal with the drugs that Mark Abbott and others may have been moving at the time. Mark Abbott, Matt Abbott, Kevin Williams, Ray Ring, Gary Arnson, and Gene Haynes were all now mentioned one way or another in the Lawless Investigative Reports. All those names were mentioned in the files that got my hands on regarding Operation Speed Bump. Lyle Day and Andy Stone's names were not mentioned in those reports, but both have been convicted of drug charges at one time or another. As I've said before, this case is complicated. There's more than what can be seen on the surface. This is more than a murdered girl on the interstate. Whether Michelle's death had anything to do with drugs or not, her murder has led us into this murky Scott County soil. It's a story about something much larger lurking in Scott County, the culture I referred to in the first few minutes of episode one. 
I don't know what Michelle knew or didn't know other than what's in her diary. But the fact of the matter is that she knew some drug dealers. And those drug dealers happened to hang out at least some of the time at TNT Tanning Salon in Sykeston. By the way, I have a copy of an investigative report from a girl who Lyle dated around the same time he dated Michelle, and I found it very interesting. Now, this interview didn't take place until January. This witness told police she didn't think Lyle was capable of murder, what with his hip injury and all, unless he had help. The witness did say she was with Lyle the morning after the murder, and they were at TNT where she overheard an argument between Day and Andy Stone. She said Andy kicked him out and told him not to come around anymore and stop associating with him. The witness told officers that Day was complaining that his leg was hurting real bad. The witness said Day took a lot of pain medication for his hip. Again, this is late January, but she stated that after the murder, Day and Stone didn't hang out together anymore, and neither did Day and Gene Haynes. Oh, and there was another interesting thing in that report by this particular witness. She'd heard that Day had used cocaine with Stone the night before the murder. Could that have been the same party in Sykeston that Mark Abbott referenced in the Wooten report? It's an interesting theory. So let's match this up with what we know that Andy Stone did the evening of November 8th. He personally called the sheriff's office. And even though he knew Lyle Day very well, even though he knew Day had a motive, even though he fought with Day, kicked him out, and told him not to come around anymore, the first thing out of Stone's mouth when he contacted police was Michelle's reference to a sexual abuser who she'd told him had raped her a decade or more previously. Later, he'd even tell police that Michelle said her dad was treating her bad. Stone told police that Michelle had plans to see some boy from Sigma Tau the Friday night before the murder. Stone would eventually be asked about Lyle Day, but he always deflected Day's involvement. Michelle knew Andy Stone well. She shared intimate secrets with him and even showed him the tattoo that no one in her family really knew about. So, Andy Stone. He's an interesting character in all of this, and we need to examine TNT a bit more. But before we talk about TNT, we have to talk about Norman Lambert. Norman Lambert was the original roll thrower of Lambert's Cafe, which is the tourist magnet of Scott County. It's a really, really big deal. If you live in Missouri, there's a good chance that you've eaten there. Lambert's Cafe now has three locations. There's the original one in Sykeston, which is in southeast Missouri. There's one in Ozark, Missouri, which is in southwest Missouri, not far from Springfield and Branson. And the other is in Foley, Alabama, just a hop and a skip from the Gulf. In 1992, the Foley location did not exist. But Norman Lambert was a beloved coach and teacher before he took over his parents' tiny little restaurant and turned it into a destination restaurant. Lambert died in 1996, but he's still an icon in this town. He built that restaurant to a booming enterprise with a clever powerhouse marketing gimmick plastered on billboards all over Missouri and beyond. And the food matched the hype. It was a restaurant that throwed rolls, served fried okra by the spoonful. A place where people commonly wait an hour in line just to get inside. A restaurant that would only take cash. All of Lambert's restaurants have large painted murals that feel like Norman Rockwell. At the Sykeston restaurant, Bill Farrell and Brenda Shivitz are depicted eating food at a table with Judge David Mann. Lambert would end up owning hundreds if not thousands of acres of property his own airplane, and he employed his own private pilot. He was living large, and in Sykeston, he was larger than life. Lambert had a magnetic, gregarious personality. He's well known for providing free meals to handicapped customers. But as I was digging into the Michelle Lawless murder, I had several people tell me I needed to look into Norm Lambert's death. On one occasion, I spoke to a person with close familiarity of the TNT salon back at the time of Michelle's murder. The source told me Norm Lambert was a customer at TNT. When the message came across my phone, I did a double take. It just seemed odd that a white-haired restaurant owner with a pot belly and cheerful demeanor would frequent a tanning salon. It didn't seem to fit the profile of a normal male tanning salon customer. Usually those folks would be competitive bodybuilders. By that time, I'd been trying to get Andy Stone to respond to messages for months. 
At that point, I figured Andy would have been in a position to tell me more about Michelle and her relationship with Lyle. But now that I'd heard about this connection with Lambert, a thread, by the way, that was fueled by a lot of other research I'd done, I thought I would just drop pretenses and come straight at him. I asked him flatly through Messenger whether Norm Lambert was laundering money through his salon. And the man who had ignored me for months, Andy Stone, responded within minutes of that inquiry. He called me on Messenger. We talked for 45 minutes. The conversation was illuminating. First, he confirmed that Norm Lambert was a customer. He told me that he was proud that Mr. Lambert came to his tanning salon. And he told me that at the time there were two or three other tanning salons in Sykeston, but Mr. Lambert chose TNT to frequent. And he said he appreciated that. He told me the reason Lambert liked this salon more than the others was because it was open 24-7. He told me Lambert would often make appointments at 3 in the morning. I mean, I thought that was weird, but I guess it could be explained. I mean, maybe he rose early to get things going at the restaurant to start baking those rolls. I don't know. Maybe it was just part of his morning early routine. But here's something else you should know about Lambert's. One of their top managers was named in the investigative files I have for Operation Speed Bump. In the files, it says that the manager received one-eighth ounces of methamphetamine and a quarter ounce of marijuana from dealers named Brandon Barry and J.P. Wharf. Sources who ran in those circles back in the 1990s told me that Norman's sons, particularly Ben Lambert, were big drug users. They held parties where drugs were supplied. My sources say they don't remember the Lambert sons selling dope, but they always seem to have access to it. So despite the great food that is cooked at Lambert's Cafe, despite the hard work of all the servers, the waiters, and all who serve the hundreds of people every day, there is a cloud that hangs over the Lambert franchise. Ben Lambert, a few years ago, was charged with underage sex trafficking of teenage girls. Those charges were dropped after he was ruled incompetent to stand trial. I've been told the drug use basically destroyed his brain. He's got dementia now and is living out his life in a care facility. I've been told it was common practice for him to make crude sexual jokes and advances to women in the workplace. There is currently a lawsuit against Lambert's Cafe filed by a longtime employee who said she was fired for cooperating with the investigation into Ben Lambert's behavior. Norm Lambert was sued at least twice for sexual harassment before his death in 1996. Anyway, Andy wasn't done talking about his customers in our phone interview. David Mann, it's commonly known, was a drug addict. I've come by that information from countless sources, including a couple of attorneys, three or four cops, a handful of former drug users or dealers. In fact, a former DEA officer told me that the DEA had tried on more than one occasion to set up a sting on man, but the judge seemed to be one step ahead of the drug agents. Another source, once close to Kevin Williams, told me that Williams bragged to my source that he had supplied man with drugs on at least one occasion. Another source told me it was known that drug dealers who knew man were given lenient sentences or no sentences at all. That was confirmed by others familiar with law enforcement in Scott County at the time. It's rumored that man denied search warrants to certain clientele. So man, a judge also with ties to the sheriff, was also a client at TNT Tanning Salon, where Michelle was known to hang out. I already knew that Andy Stone knew Mark Abbott. I know this because his wife Tammy, in an interview report I found associated with the murder case, told an investigator that she saw Mark Abbott at Country Night's Bar the night of the murder. So Tammy knew the twins well enough to tell them apart. And to refresh your memory, Michelle and Tammy knew each other well, and on at least one occasion went to church together. When I asked Andy about Mark Abbott, he said, yeah, he knew him. He said Mark was a customer also. Let me say that again. Mark Abbott was a customer at TNT. In fact, Andy told me that Mark had hit on his wife a couple of times, and Andy had to tell him to knock it off. Andy told me he remembers Mark being at parties and seeing him take girls into back bedrooms and have sex with them. He said he doesn't remember ever seeing Mark with Michelle, but he said he knew Mark well enough that he'd been to his parents' house previously. So we have a wealthy destination restaurant owner who only dealt in cash. We had a judge known for his cocaine use and allegedly using his power to protect those he knew. We have Mark Abbott. And remember, there's also the doctor, Reno Kova, who had twice been busted on drug charges. We have Lyle Day who worked there. 
It's an interesting clientele, one that Michelle might have known about. TNT was a tiny tanning salon nested on the busiest street in Sykeston. The facility was situated just across the road from the small city airport and backs up to the property owned by the sheriff's family. So now you can understand that when Andy Stone messaged me saying he was going to tell the full truth of what happened that night, I really felt like he had that information. He knew Michelle. He knew Lyle. He knew Mark. He knew Ray Ring. And he had one hell of a client base. Instead, he chose to hold on to his secrets. Hi, I'm Tyler Grafe, co-producer for the Lawless Files podcast. We want to remind everyone that you can support our work by going to thelawlessfiles.com. There you'll find all sorts of bonus content from blogs to timelines to full interviews. We'd also like to take a moment to give a shout out of sorts. Both Bob and I are former newspaper journalists, and we both worked at the Southeast Missourian for several years. The Lawless Files podcast owes a debt of gratitude to the journalists and news organizations who covered this case over the years, particularly the Southeast Missourian newspaper and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Newspaper journalists did an important job of getting officials on the record and holding officials accountable way back into the 1990s. And we just like to say that local journalism is important. If you want podcasts like this one 20 years from now, please support your local journalists, no matter where you live. Before we return to the episode, we'd like to say that all this work is done in memory of Michelle Lawless, who lost her life and voice on November 8, 1992. The work is dedicated to the many abused women who are connected to the characters in this story and who shared their experiences with us. You won't hear all their names, but we honor them for their courage and thank them for their trust. The interview with Ray Ring was on November 19, 1992, 11 days following the murder. It would be the last time he'd be interviewed about the lawless case for another 14 years or so. But four days later, Shivitz and Wyndham would interview Mark Abbott again. In her notes, Shivitz wrote, quote, Don't ask about Ray Ring, unquote. That little notation screams at me, but I don't know how to interpret it. Abbott told mostly the same story he'd told Shivitz before. He repeated how he saw a ring on Michelle's hand. He said the driver of her car was, quote, Not a Negro, but could have been Hispanic or Mexican as he had a dark complexion. In fact, he said the person inside had black hair with the sides and back longer. He said he was not sure if there was more than one person in the car, but he did not mention Ray Ring. So now he was changing his story once again. This time, 15 days after the murder, Mark was finally asked about his whereabouts. He said he was at Country Nights in Sykeston and left about 1 a.m. He said after he reported the incident to the sheriff's office, he drove to a friend's house in Cape Girardeau and stayed a couple of hours. He did not mention that he went home, and he did not mention that he returned to the crime scene. He was also finally asked whether he knew Michelle. He said he did not know her and would be willing to submit to a blood test and a polygraph. So I'm going to beat this dead horse. I'm going to keep beating it because I think we've gone over a lot and it's hard to keep straight. But let's pull it all together and go through the statements. I'm going to review 13 suspicious or contradictory statements or facts that should have raised significant alarms with the investigation of this case concerning Mark Abbott. Number one, we have the twin reporting his name as Matt to the Sheriff's Department. It's very unlikely that both Jury and Newman wrote down the wrong name in their notes incorrectly. Number two, one of the Abbots returned to the crime scene in a car driving slowly down the outer road and then back up. Mark Abbott had a revoked license at the time, and Moore said he could smell alcohol. Number three, Mark Abbott drives a black S10 pickup truck. Obviously, that's different than a car. Number four, there's no mention of a hitchhiker to jury at the jail or to Roy Moore at the crime scene. Number five, Mark was not home the following morning, but Beardsley caught him on the third try. He says the window was all the way down, which it wasn't. He said he grabbed Michelle by the shoulder and lifted her up. Number six, Mark said he saw her wearing rings, which she was not wearing. He did not mention a payphone or a white car near the crime scene. Number seven, Mark said he went to the sheriff's station and then right back here to the house, but did not mention Heather Pierce. Number eight, 
He did not mention to Beardsley about returning to the crime scene, which would have taken him in the opposite direction of the house. Number nine, Mark asks, quote, from Benton, unquote, when Beardsley tells him Michelle's name for the first time. Number 10, after his interview with Beardsley, Mark talks to two other officers an hour later, and now he says he saw a man with a dark complexion in a white car who was looking for gas near the crime scene. Number 11, 10 days after the murder, Mark went to Scott City PD to report that he recognized the man in the car as Ray Ring, who he'd seen earlier that night at a party, and who was a friend of Michelle's ex-boyfriend. <clears throat> he states that he not only saw a dark-complected person, but recognized the man in the car. He states he's upset with Tom Beardsley and Bill Farrell, even though they've yet to really grill him on anything. Number 12. Five days following that report, he does not mention Ray Ring, but says the person was dark-complected, not a black man, but perhaps Hispanic. And number 13. He says after going to the sheriff's department, he went straight to Heather Pierce's house in Cape. He did not mention returning to the crime scene or going, quote, right back here to the house, unquote. I mean, seriously, what the hell was going on? The state of Missouri would put this man in front of a jury as their most important witness against Josh Keezer. They wouldn't interview Ray Ring again or Lyle Day. They seemed satisfied with the alibis that were provided. There were a few more folks interviewed to try to confirm times and alibis and such, but judging by the overall inaction, it appears that investigators were convinced that Ray Ring and Lyle Day had nothing to do with Michelle's death. But wouldn't that also spark some major concerns about Mark Abbott? If Ray Ring's alibi was tight enough to walk away from that thread, then that would mean, obviously, that Mark Abbott was, at worst, lying about whom he saw, or at best, not a reliable witness as to who he saw in that car. So if you were in charge of the investigation, and you had Mark Abbott coming forward with this suspect 10 days after the murder, when he'd already had plenty of opportunities to identify this man, Ray Ring, what would you do at this point? Would it matter that he went to a different jurisdiction because he didn't trust yours? What had you done to betray his trust? Would you have wanted to know what would provoke that reaction? So what would you do? This was back in 1992. Polygraphs were a standard practice, though not admissible in court. They were trusted more back then than they are now. I don't know about you, but if I were running an investigation back in 1992, I believe I'd want to know which of these two guys was telling the truth. I'd like to think I'd have put both Ring and Abbott on a polygraph. I'd take blood from both of them. I keep trying to find out who was lying, who had motive, means, and opportunity. I would hyper-focus on these two individuals. I'd find out why Mark had contact with Lyle Day's buddy earlier that night at a party in Sykeston, at which time Lyle Day should have been there too. This whole thing should have sounded off so many alarm bells. But it was not such a moment. One month following the murder, the local newspaper, the Southeast Missourian, wrote a follow-up article. It was published in the Sunday, December 6th edition. The article, written by Sam Blackwell, described how the day after the murder, Marvin Lawless tied some silk flowers to the stop sign, and how her grandparents left a cross there. Blackwell reported that the Sheriff Department and Highway Patrol had chased hundreds of leads and rumors, but no suspect had been identified. Bill Farrell told the reporter, quote, We've talked to everybody two or three times, unquote. He said investigators were becoming frustrated. Farrell said, quote, We've had some suspects that were stronger than others, but we've never had a serious motive, unquote. Farrell told the newspaper that his department had investigated 10 murders in his 16 years, and this case was the first that had not been solved in the first week or so. He said they had to consider two possibilities. One, that someone who knew Michelle had killed her, and two, that it was a random person on the interstate. He said, quote, it's starting to look as if it was a random interstate, no reason, no motive killing. He said his office was looking for links between Michelle's murder and murders in other states. Christmas that year was incredibly hard on the Lawless family, as you can imagine. But in addition to that grief, there was also a feeling of fear that gripped the family and the community. Marvin said he was all the time worried about Michelle's brother Jason, who was 15 at the time, and Michelle's sister Valerie, who was only 12. 
Farrell's message left a feeling throughout the community that someone could be out there targeting young women on the interstate. Marvin told the reporter of that article, Mark Bliss, that it was important for the media to keep the case in the spotlight and that he was worried her murder would be put on the back burner. He did not believe the sheriff's theory that it was some random interstate killer. He said he believed the killer knew her. Quote, I haven't seen any evidence to prove otherwise, unquote. He once talked to Bill Farrell daily, but that communication had tailed off by New Year's. He said he didn't want to bug him. He said he didn't want to hinder the investigation at all. He was waiting for them to come up with something. But in reality, they did have suspects, and they did have motives. There was a pregnancy and a fight over an abortion. They had yet to really eliminate Mark Abbott. They had not yet eliminated Leon Lamb, and there were some cracks in the time alibis that they had from Lyle Day. And then now, a person, Ray Ring, had been identified as being at the crime scene. All of these people, with the exception of Leon Lamb, were potentially connected and could have been at the same party that night. Again, one more time. The person who reported the crime had yet to be eliminated as a suspect. Marvin Lawless was right. There was no evidence pointing to a random interstate killer. In fact, one of the first things that Marvin Lawless did to try to help law enforcement track down leads on the night of the murder was to hand Brenda Shivitz a business card from TNT. On the back of that card was the name of Lyle Day. The name on that card should have still been under examination. But for several weeks, the case went cold. They did check into the cousin accused of abuse, and they interviewed the other couple of guys Michelle had dated. All of them had alibis. They interviewed Lalisha again, however, on January 6th. She, among others, had mentioned one of Michelle's former supervisors, Dale Estill, as wanting to date Michelle. And she remembered something else. She remembered that she, Michelle, and another friend, Chantel Kreider, attended a Halloween party the week before her murder. She told officers that Todd Mayberry from Benton, Missouri, was at a party with Michelle. She said Michelle was drunk and kissing on him. Lalisha told officers that Michelle started sobering up and told him she didn't want to be with him, just to get lost. Lalisha Odell said Mayberry got upset, calling her a bitch and a slut. She described Mayberry as medium build, a stocky man with a temper. Chantel Kreider was at this party. She saw Todd Mayberry too. Wyndham and Shivitz interviewed Todd Mayberry. Based on that interview with Lalisha, Wyndham and Shivitz interviewed Todd Mayberry. Mayberry was two years older than Michelle, and he stated he had nothing to do with her death. He said he remembers drinking and kissing Michelle at the Halloween party, but that she left suddenly, simply stating she had to go home. Mayberry said he never tried to call her after that night, and said they had parted under good terms and had no shouting match with each other. Mayberry told police he heard Lawless hung around with drug users in Sykeston. They asked him for a blood sample. He agreed to give it. Again, this is important to remember. Michelle wrote about Todd Mayberry. First name, last name. Lalisha Odell mentioned Todd Mayberry arguing with Michelle at a party. Brenda Shivitz and Don Wyndham both interviewed Todd Mayberry. They took his freaking blood. He was a blonde-haired, stocky white kid with a broad nose. He looks nothing like Josh Keezer, nothing like a dark-complected Mexican man, nothing like Ray Ring. Todd Mayberry. First name, last name. They interviewed Dale Estill, too, the night manager at Shoney's. Estill told me he felt like they put him through several hours of questioning. He liked her outgoing and fun personality, and he had stated to others that someday he'd hope to marry a girl like that. Estill was religious and sheltered, though, and he didn't fit in with the rest of the crew necessarily. In the interview with police, he felt as if they were trying to get him to confess to something he didn't do. The murder itself traumatized him. He knew Michelle well and mourned her passing. Unlike Mark Abbott, they asked him to do a polygraph, and he complied, and he passed, and they moved on from him. That was in early February. Nothing much happened the rest of that month. But on March 1st, 1993, the case changed forever. The sheriff of Cape Girardeau County, John Jordan, called the Scott County Sheriff's Office. A jailhouse informant had come forward wanting to talk to officers about the murder of a girl in Benton. 
Shivit sketched the name Josh Keezer into her notes. Maybe this was the random interstate killer they'd been looking for. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Yeah, so that that evening, um, within either around the same time or within an hour or two of Angela's murder in in Scott County, Missouri, give or take 350 miles away, my cousin Michael and his girlfriend, Christina Garduno, his pregnant girlfriend, were in a car accident in Kankakee, Illinois. I was at um, a friend's house at the time when I got the call and was told about the accident. I was only um, a handful of blocks away, maybe a mile, mile and a half away. And I immediately became concerned. I walked to my cousin's house. It was in the middle of the night and uh, banged on the door. My cousin and his pregnant girlfriend at the time, um, there were two rooms um, near the front of the house, very small rooms. Um, and they lived, um, when you're standing in the, um, the front of the door and banging on the house, they lived to the one on the left. Um, they, they lived, but, so other family members lived in other rooms. The, um, I believe um, a younger, Christina's younger brother comes to the door, basically <laughs> gives me the what for, you know, and tells me to, you know, quit all the noise. And uh, Christina's mother then comes to the door and tells me, hey, you know, I know you're concerned. Um, they're okay. You can come and see them tomorrow. I believe my cousin Michael heard this interaction, but he also heard um, Brenda, um, Christina's mother, say what she said. So he stayed in bed. You know, and of course, the next day, you know, I checked on him. So it was late enough at night where, you know, they were already in bed. Yeah, it was, it was like it was like 10 or 11 o'clock uh, that it was like 10 or 11, somewhere around that time that I was there. Yeah. So it was late. Yeah. And just so people can understand the geography of this, I'm give or take 350 miles away from where Angela Michelle Lawless was murdered. This was that that was on November 7th between 10 and 11 o'clock or around that time that I was at my cousin's. Angela Lawless was murdered around one o'clock, November 8th, around around um, 1 a.m. November 8th, and it takes, at a minimum, at driving at a breakneck speed, five hours to get from where I was with my cousin to where Angela Michelle Wallace was murdered. So it was physically impossible for me to be in both of those locations. And I had witnesses that put me at my friend's house when I got the phone call about my cousin, I had witnesses, Brenda Garduno and her son, that put me at my, you know, at their house checking on my cousin. My lawyer at the time, Al Lowe's, did not want to call my cousin Michael to testify on my behalf, even though he wanted to testify, because they were afraid that, you know, they would, that Kenny Holsoff would just trade on his character as a human being, because my cousin Michael was kind of a despicable human being at that point. He was a gang member, had been to prison, they, and they, they just thought, you know, that they would, they, would, they would highlight his character rather than the facts. So I had witnesses that put me in Bradley, Illinois, Kankakee, Illinois. It's all the same thing if you look at it on a map. That put me there two hours before Angela's murder. I had witnesses. Yep. Witnesses that Kenny Holsoff and Bill Farrell never questioned, that Scott County never investigated. They merely told the jury that it wasn't true. 
but they themselves never investigated it, never questioned any of my witnesses, never looked into my alibi. They never so much as even questioned me. I was never cross-examined. I was never spoken to. My mother was never spoken to. My father was never spoken to. My aunts were never spoken to. My uncles were never spoken to. My cousins were never spoken to. Um, my friends were never spoken to. My place of employment, uh, Wendy's in, in, in Bradley, Illinois, was never spoken to. I had there was work records that put me there, I believe, the days surrounding the murder. Possibly, I can't remember correctly, the possibly the day of the murder, but I don't believe so. Um, they never spoke to any of these people or organizations or sources. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Never happened. Now, who does that out of good conscience? I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grave. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegon, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek who helped voice the court transcripts, as well as to Southeast Missouri State University for the use of their recording studios. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe. Next time on The Lawless Files. I stepped outside the threshold of the door. I got one foot out, and they grabbed me, put me in an arm bar, threw me up against the car, informed me that they were they were police officers, they were, um, they were plain clothes, and told me I was being arrested. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.